This is Rabbi Sharon Brouse, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Shabbat Shalom. How many of you have had the experience of reading a children's book or story as a child and loving it so much and then rereading it as an adult and feeling horrified? (laughs) Suddenly you find yourself reading it to your kids, nieces, nephews, kids at shul, wherever, and you re-encounter the story and it just isn't the same anymore. It didn't age well or you'd missed the whole point as a kid and just thought it was nice and the pictures were pretty and that's all you knew. I have so many of those. Stories that were flattened for me as a kid and then only later took on their full, much more complex shape. One of those for me is the giving tree. What I remember, yeah, that laugh is very telling. What I remember thinking as a kid is that it was an important and beautiful story about a tree that was very generous. A tree that modeled what it's like to be kind and giving and compassionate, to be of service, to care about other people. And then I reread it as an adult and I cried. A tree that gave everything to a person who was ungrateful and kept asking for more. A tree that sacrificed itself for a person in front of them. Slowly, slowly destroying itself, and for what? The tree loves the boy so much, gives him leaves for a crown, and apples to eat, and shade to rest in, and branches to build a house, and a trunk to build a boat, over and over again through the course of the boy's life until the tree has nothing left, nothing but a stump, which in his old age the man now sits on. All that's left of the tree is its stump. It was too much for me to handle as an adult. How did this become a book for children? All I could see was how cruel humanity could be and how entitled to the natural world. Our tradition often reminds us of these human tendencies toward cruelty and the ways that we have to fight against those inclinations. In this week's Parsha, Shof team, we're reminded that sometimes we need to create systems to help curb the possibility for cruelty. We are reminded of all the laws about creating a justice system. And then it's also where we learn about wartime laws, where we're told what the guidelines are when we find ourselves in some kind of war. What do you do in a time that often brings out the cruelty in humanity? We get a list. First, in entering into battle, a priest should address the troops to encourage them and remind them not to be afraid and to have faith in God. Then officials should address them, sending people home for various compassionate reasons, Then the commanders will take the remaining group and lead them into battle. And then, just as we're getting all the details of what that will look like, we're told what to do about enemy trees. Yes, trees, of all things. It says, When you're in a war of some kind and it takes many days to to capture some kind of city, when this battle is extended and long, Lo tashchit et etzah. Do not destroy their trees. In this case, specifically the fruit-bearing trees. Leave them. In the middle of the war, you must leave the trees. You must not take their leaves, fruit, 
shade, branches to build a house, trunk to build a boat. You need to let them be. Why this explicit command? Well, we get a little more insight, maybe, from an odd phrase at the end of that same verse where we first hear about the trees. It says, Ki had Adam eats hasadet, because the trees of the field are human. Or maybe, are the trees of the field human? The language is hard to parse. Or maybe it's that the human is like the tree of the field, equivalent to the tree. Our commentators, of course, have a field day with this odd phrasing. Here are three ways to understand it. One, Rashi says, is a tree like a person that it can flee from you? Implying, obviously, that it's not. So then why destroy it? Trees, in other words, are somewhat defenseless. You have to protect them. You have to protect their preciousness and inability to run away. Let them be. Two, Ibn Ezra has a different take. He says, what it means is that the life of a person is sustained by a tree. That is the connection. The trees are needed for their fruit for humanity. We are sustained by the fruit of those trees, and so the rest of the tree should be left in its full glory. And three, I think there's also another way to read this. The phrase has Adam, the person, first. The person is like the tree. Not that the tree is like or unlike a person, or that the tree needs to provide for us, but that we are connected with the trees. We are all bound up in the same ecosystem and environment, and we depend on each other for whatever the future holds. Though, of course, those trees have seen and will see so much more of life and history and what's to come than any of us individually ever will. We are, as it turns out, more alike than we are different. We have to protect the trees. Because they are defenseless, because they sustain us, and because we are like them, because our fates are intertwined. In the last 10 days, the world has become captivated by a single tree, the sprawling banyan tree in Lahaina, the 150-year-old tree that has stood at the center of the small Hawaiian town for generations, a town now decimated by the recent fires. This tree has become the emblem of the destruction and also of resilience. The tree, despite the raging violence around it, it still stands. Somehow, the tree has not been destroyed. And, like that tree, the soul of that town, the soul of the people of Maui, has not been destroyed either. This devastation, of course, cannot be understood outside the framework of climate change and climate destruction. Increased global temperatures have led to more hurricanes, this time bringing uncharacteristically strong winds to Maui, a place already experiencing a great drought also because of climate change, which then led to the beginning of the fires. Though we don't know exactly how the fires began, these factors certainly played a large role. And as the temperatures continue to rise globally, so do the risks of more, hur more hurricanes, more droughts, higher winds, and more fires. But how did we even get here, to a tropical island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean burning? It is not naturally a fire ecosystem. That's the other piece of this. Here is the equivalent of the adult version of the giving tree. Much of the island of Hawaii, and in this case Maui and Lahaina, has been shaped by colonialism. So how did this island burn so fast? It didn't have the plants and trees that would have spared some of it. It is a tropical island stripped of its natural fruit trees burning. It didn't, that truth of colonialism is underneath all of this. In fact, 
Even that emblematic banyan tree of Lahaina, the 150-year-old famous one with all the eyes on it right now, that too is a non-native tree. That too was brought to the island from elsewhere by colonizers. Even this beautiful, now 60-foot-tall tree has a more complicated story than what we're told. What we are seeing unfold in Hawaii right now is one way to understand why the law exists in the Torah. Exactly why we're told, Lo tashrit et etzah, do not destroy the trees, leave them as they are. This mitzvah that we're given is a wartime mitzvah, given on the precipice of the troops entering battle. And we see that its truth plays out in colonial violence as well. In this case, 19th century settlers to Hawaii replaced indigenous practices with large-scale agriculture and non-native grasses. Instead of taro and yams and coconut and bamboo and breadfruit, it was now full of monoculture pineapple and macadamia nuts and sugar plantations. And now, 200 years after that, after many of the plantations have ceased to exist, that land is now overrun with these non-native grasses. The same grasses, of course, that caught fire first on Maui with the high winds and drought. Here, right in front of our faces, we are seeing another outcome of what happens when we don't follow the Torah's wartime guidance. Look how our landscapes are impacted by violence. The violence of colonialism has directly affected climate change. There's no way around that. In fact, the International Panel on Climate Change has now reported that colonized areas are more likely to face worse climate disasters. And that this is because of two factors. Not only the cutting down of native trees and plants, but also a complete, completely different way of relating to the land. The colonizers brought a paradigm of commodification of the land. Use whatever you want or need from the natural world with no concerns for its repercussions. They brought the giving tree ethos to places like Hawaii. Replacing a culture that worked in tandem with the earth, understanding its rhythms and necessities, honoring all that the land could give and all that the people needed to give back to the land. The kind of relationship with the land and the earth that is actually sustainable. A real mutual existence of the people and the trees. But where is that children's story? What stories have we been told instead that are continuing to undermine this planet? And how much have those been shaped by colonialism? I mean, at least so much so that the emblem of the resilience of Maui, the very old towering tree, turns out not even to be native itself. The truth of taking over this land is so insidious and so old. But this is not a children's story, or at least not one that we've known before. Until this week, many of us were completely underinformed about the history of Hawaii. What story should we be telling our children instead? What ways can we challenge the premise of the stories we've been given? Lahaina is not the giving tree. Neither is Maui or Hawaii or the park down the street from your house or the tree in your front yard or the desert or the beach or the dirt rose or the rose garden, the dirt road or the rose garden. These are sacred places that have been and continue to be exploited by us. We who are the stewards of the earth. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch said that the commandment of lo tashrit, the commandment of do not destroy, is the most comprehensive warning to human beings not to misuse the position God has given us. What is that position, he says? The position that God has given us is as masters of the world and its matter. 
That misuse happens through what Rabbi Hirsch describes as capricious, passionate, or merely thoughtless, wasteful destruction of anything on earth. Anything on earth. We have been given a clear warning. What are we doing it? What are we doing with it? How is it affecting us? Right now, in our calendar, we are just entering into the month of Elul, the month leading up to the High Holidays, a month that calls us to look inward and do some reckoning with ourselves and how we are acting out our values in the world. In light of everything around us, what will this month call you to do? Will it remind you of the responsibility inherent in your place as a steward of the earth? Will it push you to question the narratives being given to you? Will it call you to recommit to an environmental action that has fallen by the wayside? Will you tell a different story to your children or grandchildren about the earth, a more honest and true one? This destruction is happening all around us. What do you want your children and grandchildren to say about you in this moment? What do you want them to know that you did in the world? Our ancestors, the ancient ones, the Torah ones, were very clear. Lo tashkit et etzah. Do not destroy the trees. Ki ha'adam etz hasadeh. Because we are the tree of the field. Because we and the tree are one and the same. And we are inching toward destroying both the trees and ourselves. Our present and future are bound up with each other's. What truer story can we tell before we find ourselves, many, de many decades from now, sitting on the stump that is the only remaining trace of the tree that once was? Shabbat shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.